Welcome to the Etobicoke Historical Society's monthly oral history podcast. This podcast is one of a series of interviews of senior Etobicoke residents in the 1980s. The interview tapes were recently discovered in the local history room at Richview Public Library. We would like to thank the Toronto Public Library for giving them back to us so they could be made into these podcasts. These oral histories are a valuable and unique view into the history of Etobicoke in the early part of the 20th century, as seen through the personal experiences of local residents. We will be presenting a different interview each month. We hope you enjoy them. Today is uh, Wednesday, July 28th, and I'm talking to Wilbert Guardhouse of the Guardhouse family of the Highfield area in northern Etobicoke. Now, um, Mr. Guardhouse, the first, you went overseas in World War I. What group were you with? I was with what was known as the 56th Battery, Canadian Field Artillery. It was an 18-pound battery which was recruited from the Ontario Agricultural College at uh, Guelph. In 1950, uh, along with a number of other students there, we felt we wanted to contribute to the first war in some active part. And decided we would try to get a battery uh, recruited right from students of the college. And as a result, we held one or two small organization meetings and uh, sent a petition to the Honorable Sam Hughes, who was then the Minister of National Defense asking him to give permission for us to establish a battery from the Agricultural College, to call it the Ontario Agricultural College Battery, and give us the right to appoint all our own officers. After some consideration, he decided to grant some of our wishes but, uh, such as he uh, gave us permission to form what was then later known as the 56th Battery of Canadian Field Artillery and to appoint all our officers uh, from amongst qualified artillery officers excepting the officer commander he reserved the right to appoint him, which he did. He appointed a Major V.J. Kent from London, who turned out to be a brilliant officer and a wonderful man. Now, who was the uh, driving force be behind this? Who, who, who came up with the original idea to create this battery from OIC? Oh, it was general. There were a lot of the boys had been thinking in their minds for a year to a year and a half, ever since war broke out August the 4th, uh, 14, that they should go. 
and it was kind of a meeting of the minds. Now, um, am I speaking too high? No, that's fine. It's fine. Thanks. Uh, when you got over to Europe, where uh, where did you? Uh, where were two or three of the battles that you participated in? Well. Uh, We got the first battle we took part in was on the Lens Front. And we had our guns dug in at a little place called City Saint Pierre on the edge of a fosse. A fosse is the uh, remains of the coal after uh, coal has been processed. And we were only in that position about a week when the Germans apparently knew we were a green outfit. And they really hammered us heavily day and night. As a matter of fact, we had our gas masks on for, as I recall, between six and eight hours, never having had them off. Are they, they attacked with uh, gas as well? Yeah, gas, mustard gas, not uh, not chlorine, mustard gas. Mustard gas, as you perhaps know, sticks, if you touch it anywhere, it sticks to the skin and burns you. And you have that for the rest of your life. And it touches points of your body where there are moisture, very serious. Now, uh, what other battles did you participate in? Just a couple. I've got to stop and think on that one. I was not in the original, we were not in the original battle of Vimy Ridge. But I recall later after the battle, I when I became a sergeant uh, in charge of a gun crew, I was detached from the battery temporarily to go up into Vimy Village and to do harassing fire and sniping work up close to the infantry. It was in that position where we were almost the gun pit we were in had been established by the Germans and there were rats, as we'd go to sleep at night, there were rats in that uh, dugout about the size of big kittens. As a matter of fact, I'd been to Paris on leave and I got some pictures of myself taken to send home and had them mailed to my battery position, they arrived in, at Arras, and I woke up one morning and the rats had chewed all the corners out of my picture. Now, uh, you were injured in the war. What, uh, what, what battle was that in? We had just come back from Abion, on where the big battle there was August the 8th, 1918. And that was the first time we really started to feel within ourselves that
that we were winning. <coughs> we came back from Arras, uh, we came back from Avion to the Arras front. And uh, on the, we, the day I was wounded uh, was at a place called Dury, D-U-R-Y. It was known for having a windmill on a hill there. And uh, I, we were actually standing down at the time I was wounded. But one of our officers, by the name of Lieutenant Ruthven Wilson of Toronto, uh, I saw him in the distance, and I saw a shell break almost on top of him. And instinct works faster than thinking power, and I rushed over. I thought he'd been blown up, and I rushed over to, hopefully, to rescue him or to bring him in. And he realized the seriousness of the situation even much more than I did. And he said, Gardas, we're going to be killed. Let's get out of here. And he started to run. I followed him. He made a flying leap for a tank that had been stranded over a trench. Uh, yes, we he urged me to follow him and to take cover. And there was a tank which had been smashed in a battle in the morning uh, uh, over a trench. And he made a flying leap for the, under the tank and I followed him. And apparently at that exact moment there was a terrible crash and Apparently, the, the uh, shell hit the tank. I heard Blondie calling that his old right arm was gone. I was bleeding from my head, an artery cut there somewhere, and I had no, I recall putting my hand up to my forehead to feel it and to see if any of the internals were outside of my head. I was able to, while I was trying to stem the flow of blood and could hardly see for the flow of blood, I crawled out the trench, down the trench, and got help from a couple of our signalers. Uh, signaler by the name of W.R. White from Ottawa. He worked at the experimental farm before the war and another of his buddies from Redford. And they came out and brought Blondie Wilson into our unit. As a result of that action, Blondie Wilson got a military cross uh, uh, White got a Distinguished Conduct Medal and uh, his 
Buddy got a military medal. But the aftermath of that, uh, I was carried on a stretcher. Both Blondie and I were carried by stretcher bearers over to a field which is being used as a casualty clearing station. No building, just a field where there were stretchers lying all over waiting for the ambulances to come to take the stretchers away. And uh, we were tagged and I eventually heard uh, a stretcher bearer, someone in charge, say, Sergeant Garner, Sergeant Garner. I answered yes. And they came over and picked my stretcher up and put me in the ambulance. It seems that Blondie Wilson wouldn't permit them to take the ambulance away until I was put in. As a result of that, I've talked to the boys from our unit after the war was over, and they tell me that within half an hour of that time, that whole casualty clearance station was shelled, and very few of those stretcher bearers were alive. Very few of those men on stretchers were alive. Now that 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 essentially finished your the, your service in the army because the war ended soon. Well, after. that's my act of service. I went. I was in three, four different hospitals and all that kind of thing. Then eventually, I was invalided home in February, nineteen nineteen. Now, uh, after you got home, you stayed. You stayed at the family house for a while, then you worked for Willis Overland That's right. Company. Now, um, after that uh, point, uh, in the 30s, you started, first were elected to the town of Weston as a council member? I was elected as a council member in uh, 1931. Now, what, what made you go into politics? Well, politics was discussed over our table from the time we were children. I was one of seven in a family. And even as a little lad, I can recall in the 1911 elections, that was what we called the reciprocity election. Recall my father was out speaking on that as a, in favor of reciprocity, uh, fa uh, uh, as an agricultural specialist. But I can recall as a boy at that age, putting posters up on the local town buildings and, and uh, telephone poles and so on. How did, how did your first election go? I won. You won and handily or? Yes, I topped the poll. Now, how long there were six uh, councillors elected, and I topped the poll. But that, I think, I, I don't recall any other man at that time who'd had service in the First War. No doubt that helped me a bit. And my family was 
reasonably well known as well. Now, uh, how long did you stay as in, in politics as an elected official? As an elected, I was in politics as a elected person. I ran for council in 31, ran for deputy reed in 32, and deputy reed in 33. And you were successful in both those? I was successful in both. <clears throat> and then what happened after that? Well, then the Depression was at its really basic roots at that time. And I had been working for the Willis Overland Company for 14 years, starting from a junior clerk and ending up as sales manager for Canada of the Commercial Car Division. And they, the American company, got into financial difficulties. The Canadian company tried to carry on, but uh, no Canadian automobile company, manufacturing company, can carry on if their American uh, parent isn't operating. And after a year, Willis Overland went into liquidation. Then it was time for me, having spent 13 years there, to look around for employment. Became a very serious thing at that particular time. And uh, the treasurer of the County of York at that time was a man called Mr. D.J. McDonald. And uh, he took a stroke in March of 1933. And the County of York was required then to get a successor for him. And a number were urging me to run for the position. There was over 110 different applicants for that position. I didn't make a formal application, but I didn't say if elected, I wouldn't serve. And to make a long story short, eventually after various contentious meetings, council meetings went on for between two and three days as between the appointment of a man called Milton Legge, L-E-G-G-E, who had been warden of the county of York at one time, and myself. He was a considerably older man and had perhaps more general municipal experience, but uh, my youth and my overseas service seemed to appealed to some of the members of the council and on May the 12th I was elected as treasurer of the county of York and served for 20 consecutive years. Now this was May? May 12th, 1933. 1933. What sort of, uh, what was the, the, the split on the vote? Was it just like a one or two person no, difference? Or? Uh, they had 
they had a couple of votes. The first vote by, uh, went against me by two votes. And someone raised an objection to some course of procedure. They adjourned and came back two weeks later. And on that occasion, I won fairly, fairly handily. I can't tell you how many votes. Five, six, or seven, anyway. What, what happened in that two-week period? <coughs> Make them change. I don't know. Far as I'm concerned, I did nothing to canvas. I did nothing to seek that appointment because I had I was a bit indifferent because it seemed to me I had always been a sort of a blithe spirit. And uh, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to become a civil servant, sort of a political capon. And when I was appointed and accepted, I had my mind that I would try to get it out of its difficulty, try to probably spend five, six years, and then go back to industry again when times got better. But instead of that, I enjoyed my work so much and apparently uh, pleased the members of council to the point that I continued for 20 years. Now, um, during the Depression, there was quite a few unemployed, obviously a lot of unemployed people. Uh, was there any ever tr any trouble you remember of? Uh, yes. And I can't be as explicit on dates as I'd like to be. Very serious trouble in the township of Etobicoke. Etobicoke administered its own welfare. And don't forget on welfare then, it was an unknown thing uh, until those days. Uh, even uh, professional people were some of them are relief. People that never knew what the word relief or welfare meant were found it necessary to go on well. Well, in the township of Etobicoke, there was a reed by the name of W.A. Armstrong, a very hardy Scot. He'd been a soldier of the First War in the 15th Battalion, which is the 48th Highland. Bill Armstrong was a wonderful man. Not too much formal education, but the thriftiness of the Scot and a determination to anything he took hold of, he put over. And to, while he died many years ago, I still have terrific admiration for him, his physical courage, and his moral courage. On this particular occasion, he and the welfare officer, a man called, uh, what do I get his name? Charlie, Charlie Grubb, C.C. Grubb, spelled G-R-U-B-B-E, were in the township office, the old office on Islington Avenue, when a group 
of welfare recipients stormed the building and held he and the two men hostage. I can't tell you now the length of time, but if I had to make a guess, I'd say they held them hostage uh, at least 72 hours and threatened them with hanging. Had a rope actually in there, which they put a noose on and hung it over a garter and held, dangled that noose in front of them and said, unless you authorize our welfare to be higher, to be more, to get more welfare, we'll hang you. I can't tell you the, exactly how long they were held prisoner. But it was a nasty, nasty situation. What, what happened? To, how did they get out of it in the end? I don't know whether the police eventually stormed it or not. My recollection is the police didn't. That the welfare recipients got so tired that they, uh, by the process of tiring, they released their prisoners. But I have talked to Bill Armstrong since, and he has told me that he really thought they were going to hang both of them. Now, you can, you, you can re uh, polish that by getting, I would think the year would be about 34, 5 or 6 and the date and the detail. It had headlines in the Toronto paper. And a similar incidence of less ferocity uh, occurred in the township of York when a man called Reeve uh, Magwood, when Magwood was Reeve of York Township. He appeared at the office in his evening clothes en route to somewhere when they took him hostage and kept him not so long or there wasn't the same ferocity to it. Incidentally, it may, may be not be apropos here, but when I went on council in the town of West, the committee dealing with those things was called the Charity Committee. Then it evolved to the Relief Committee. Then it revolved to Welfare Committee and is now known as Social Services. Quite an evolution, isn't it? You think that's... Uh not only just an evolution in name, but an evolution in an attitude? Yes, yeah, an evolution both in name and attitude. You think it was something for the better? I think it's done more good? Oh, I, yes, yes, I think it is. There may still be some... I'm not sure that there is any tarnish to the word welfare today. But there was in those days. Would people go to great lengths to, uh, to if they were collecting welfare, to try to 
Oh yes, yes. To avoid because being because there were some people whose pride never thought they'd ever reach that type of publicity. I recall people in my own community, fine, upright, hard-working citizens, who were just uh, found themselves in that unfortunate situation. And while times today may be difficult, they're nothing compared to those days. Now, after the uh, after the depression, and all these people were able to get back to work. Um, would that they, wasn't until '39, the yeah, war. The uh, would they would they talk about the people that did collect welfare? Do they sort of avoid mentioning? Oh yes. That yes. that era completely. Oh yes. Would they try to cover it up? I wouldn't say they tried to cover it up, but they weren't proud of having been forced into a situation which was not of their own making. Now. Uh, 20 years as treasurer of uh, York County, um, you did a lot of things, but what are some of the some of the more important things that you did the, on council? Something that sticks out in your mind. Well, one of the things, and it's something of a semi-personal nature, in the 20 years I was treasurer, the county was, was successful in having 20 balanced budgets and uh, we went on a pay-as-you-go basis. Uh, that uh, record was so, so well thought of by one uh, Chicago newspaper that they ran an article headed, Can You Top That?, and cited the experience of the County of York with 20 successive balanced budget. Now, that doesn't sound too difficult, but the, there must have been a, a real problem in doing that. Oh, much more difficult than it sounds, because every member of council is first a human being and has his likes and his dislikes. Every member of council, no matter who they are, are for economy, as long as it doesn't hurt their pet project. And every one of the councillors have pet projects. And everyone are pushing for their pet project to get, uh, I don't know whether pet project is the correct definition, but things they're more interested in than other things. And as a result, they are perhaps more interested, will be better known by the people who elect them back home for what they got for their constituents than whether the county, which is quite a way away, had a balanced budget that year. Now, there was also other problems with uh, the townships that were or in villages and towns of the, the county. Now, a lot of them would have been in financial difficulty, too. All of them in the suburban area within the county of York, with the exception of the village of Forest Hill, were all uh, in default and under supervision 
by the Department of Municipal Affairs Department. So how would you, now you got your money from the different municipalities in the region, how would, if they're all in default, how would you actually get any money to pay for any of the, uh, any of the services the county provided? Their levies, the levies from the local municipality to the county were not due till the 20th day of November in each year. The reason I'm told for that is, goes back to the days of the farm, when the farmers usually didn't sell their produce till the fall, and they wouldn't pay their taxes until the fall. Therefore, the local municipality didn't have their money to pay the county. And after November the 20th, if they didn't pay their levies, then we applied interest at the going rate at that time, a penalty for non-payment or their... But as treasurer of the county at that time, by that time, I was treasurer and I held meetings with individually with every local municipality to try to arrange a monthly budget. They'd pay it. Say their yearly levy was $100,000. I'd try and break that down into say 10,000 a month for 10 months. Say starting January, February, March, April. And eventually I was able to get some semblance out of what looked like a, almost a financial morass and got promises at least from the local municipalities and asked them to go to their banks and get their ba local banks to approve of that because they were in the hands of the banks as well as in the hands of the Department of Municipal Affairs. The local councils only had, uh, in a defaulted municipality, there was a board of supervisors and they had veto power over everything the council did. So I tried to get the arrangements which I made with the municipalities concurred in by their bank, their council, and the supervisor. And after a very long drawn out, much blood, sweat, toil, and tears, we got the semblance of something down on paper. And then we took care of each month as it came along. And on many occasions, they wouldn't be able to pay the monthly, in some occasions. February would come along, I wouldn't have the check. I'd fold them. Why, I haven't got your $10,000 in yet, Phil. Well, the bank won't permit it. Who is your banker? Bank of Commerce. Who is your bank manager? Okay, do you mind if I call him? No. So I would call Mr. Lancaster, the manager of their bank. What happened, Mr. Lancaster? I thought we had an agreement to pay 
$10,000? Well, yes, but head office won't approve it. Who do you deal with at head office? Well, I knew their man at head office, and he was a Scotchman. So I tried to get him on the phone. He wouldn't answer my call. At last, I left Ward as his secretary. Unless he called me back, I was going down to see Mr. Arscott, the general manager of the bank. He never returned my call. I then put a call into Mr. Arscott, the general manager of the Canadian Bank of Commerce. Mr. Arscott sent word back by his secretary, what do you want, Carlos? I said, I want to talk to you about the $10,000 that Leeside has promised to pay us, and his bank won't approve it, and your head office man won't approve it. Well, uh, I, I'll call you back. Mr. Arscott will call you back. In a few minutes, Mr. Arscott, secondary, called me back, said, Gardos, come down and see our municipal man. I've instructed him to make the payment. Many of those similar types of incidents over the phone. Now, uh, what other things were uh, personally important to you on York County? Uh, one thing at that time, which is purely incidental, I had to, I had to strike a budget, prepare a cash budget of receipts and disbursements by months. And once we got that approved by the bank, if there was something not in that, and a man, we owed the money, but wasn't in the budget, wasn't expected, I couldn't make payment of a $500 check without getting the bank's approval. I've had many occasions when a man would come in to me and say, Gardens, I got my car in the garage over here. I haven't money enough to pay the repair bill, which is $200. You owe me $200. So I would not be able to tell him the real story behind the picture, but I'd say that the warden and commissioners haven't authorized that payment and let me go into my office and investigate it, leave him outside. I'd phone the bank, say, Bill Smith's here, we owe him 200 bucks, it isn't in the budget, may I pay him? Let him wait! So I'd come back and say, Mr. Smith, I'm very sorry, but probably in 10 days' time I'll be able to help you. That went on a number of times. Must have made a lot of enemies doing that. No, I tried to, I tried to show that I sympathized with them. I don't think I ever made any permanent enemies in that particular way. Don't think I did. Now, um, <coughs> there was a couple other things uh, you had mentioned earlier that you were, uh, that were 
very important at that point, some of the things you did on council and in the county government. There was the mention of uh, of the uh, home for the aged, I believe. Oh, yes. Uh, having been interested in livestock and brought up with livestock since I was a child, my father's business was the importation and breeding of purebred Hackney standard breads, Clydesdale horses, shorthorn cattle, and Leicester sheep. I, we had a home for the aged at Newmarket with about 100 to 150 uh, residents. And I suggested to the commission of three men who were in charge of the home, elected representatives, that we give some consideration to the installation, the buying of a small purebred herd of Holstein cattle. You may ask me why Holstein. Shorthorns are good for beef, but the shorthorns are not nearly as good for milk. And milk and butter and cheese and cream were the ingredients I thought we might uh, get pure ingredients for our residents. So they approved of the idea, and uh, along with them, we set up a small herd of registered Holstein Frisian cattle. And uh, I paid close attention to the herd, the breeding, the rearing, the feeding, and most of it by visiting the home once or twice a month in Newmarket, and then by long-distance telephone. And over a period of years, we established a very good, small, Holstein Frisian herd of cattle. As the Holstein Frisian breeders of Canada number about 14,000, and they set up certain criteria that have to be adhered to in order to get the designation of master breeder. That's a very highly sought after thing amongst the 14,000 members. And eventually we adhered to or succeeded in breeding the number of animals and that reached the record both of production and uh, confirmation required and we were designated presented with the master breeder shield which at that had we received that at that time on our small herd with a small investment of dollars before the Ontario Agricultural College at Guelph and McDonald College at Quebec, St. Anne de Bellevue, received their master. They got them, but little after us. <laughs> now, how much did you spend on this herd? Did Our they... original investment was less than a thousand bucks. 
Now, for how many? Oh, uh, I think we got about four head of cattle, and added gradually to that. Yeah. Now, uh, eventually, the herd got up to uh, probably thirty-five head. And what, 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 when did the uh, did you get rid of the herd from from the? Uh, uh, after I left the county, I they asked me to continue on on an advisory capacity and I think let's see I left in I think it is 57 the county of York disposed of their herd how much had, had a dispersal sale how much did they get do you remember I can't tell you those I can't because I wasn't treasurer at that time I was an I was with Metro Toronto at that time. And how did it go a long way in making that, that home uh, self-sufficient? I think it helped. It gave the residents and inmates pride in looking over the cattle. And it also gained a prestige for the county in the agricultural world that they perhaps hadn't had to quite the same degree before that. Now, there were a few of the citizens of the county who raised the point of should a small government institution be in competition uh, for sales with resident breeders. I made sure that they, some of the elected representatives from time to time wanted us to exhibit our cattle at the fairs. But I knew that wouldn't work. The farmers would say, who have herds of their own, you're in competition and that's unfair. But despite that, they went ahead with it there. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Etobicoke Historical Society's Oral History Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and like. If you wish to learn more about the work of our society, be sure to visit www.etobicohistorical.com. See you next month.